Lord, I thank you for Delray Church. I thank you for the saints who are here this day. Uh, we pray for those who this morning, uh, for good reason, were unable to be here. And Lord, we just ask that you would bless them. Bless their families. Strengthen them. Uh, bless our single brothers and sisters and uh, the widowed who, have, uh, who are alone this day. Lord, bring them comfort. Bless those who have lost loved ones. Bless those who have lost work. Bless those who are uh, behind and feeling the pinch. Lord, I ask that, that, that here now that the distractions of life and the things that jump in our mind and make us feel anxious, and Lord, that, that you would supernaturally move through your word here today as we come to hear your word, Lord, and that we would, that we would be able to set those things aside and focus on you for, the, for an hour, just to focus on you and think about you. Get us out of our minds and get us into your mind Oh, Father, the, the mind of your Son, the mind of Christ, by your Spirit, may we have eyes to see as he sees. May we rejoice in the good news that has come in him. Have your way with this study of your word here today. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and find your way to the very last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew is a Jewish follower of the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, or as we uh, transliterate it over into English as Jesus. Matthew's gospel account uh, gives us all this kind of pertinent apologetic issues that Jewish people living in the first century would be asking about the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, particularly what was relevant to them was the fact that the Jewish Messiah had become really popular in non-Jewish communities that was creating a lot of ethnic tension. If you're, if you're really Jewish and you're following the so-called Jewish Messiah, why do you have all these Gentiles that are, that are following after him and what's going on with that? And that created certain ethno-cultural tensions, indeed even some political tensions with that. And so Matthew's gospel is an eyewitness account that kind of sorts that through for the ancient Jewish audience to understand the relevance of the historical Jesus and to also have backed up apologetically uh, the reasons why the community received him and believed in him and even died for him. Now, 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 now things culminate at the end in chapter 28 where you are with the ascension of Jesus, which we recently studied. And before Jesus ascends to heaven and offers the promise of his return, he has to explain some things to his own disciples because there were certain messianic expectations. The Messiah was supposed to bring a, a kingdom to the people, overthrow the corrupt government, and liberate people and all these things. And those things weren't happening. And Jesus is talking about going and coming back. And, 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 and so they needed to get clear on what that, what that is. And so here we have at the end of Matthew's gospel what we refer to as the Great Commission, where Jesus commissions his Jewish disciples and he tells them, the kingdom ain't popping off right now. We're not overthrowing governments or anything. I'm actually sending you to go into the world to be humble, to serve, to sacrifice, even to die for purposes of the message of me, that I have come, that I have died for sinners, that, that I have come to pardon and to bring forgiveness. Matthew chapter 28, if you look at the end there, verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. And some were doubtful, it says. Now, they're not doubtful with regard to his identity. That, that's loud and clear. They're just doubtful of, hey, what, what's going on? Why are we up on a mountain? What, what's popping off? What's going on right now? What, where are you? You've been talking about leaving us. What's going on right now? And Jesus says to them in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. He sends them into the world. These Jewish disciples, he sends them to the nations. To ethne, it's where we get our word ethnicity. To other people groups. He's sending a, a minority community that has been uh, uh, oppressed and stamped down in, in, in the world by Rome. He's sending them to go into Rome in the darkness of Rome and proclaim to them that their Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, is the savior of their enemies, is the savior of the world. And they are going to go and they are to, to move there from that mountaintop down into Jerusalem into the world and tell the world that he has come. 
tell the world that the God of creation has, has solved the problem of humanity. And the problem of humanity is sin. The problem of humanity is death. 10 out of 10 people die and 10 out of 10 people sin. The Bible explains this correlation. The wages of sin is death. We die because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We need one to pardon us, to liberate us, to rescue us from the power of sin, to justify us in the courtroom of God. Behold, that one has come. Behold the Son in the flesh. We worship the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, the Father who sent the Son to come for us, who became a man and died in the place of man, and as God, he offers pardon and forgiveness, and by his power, a power that he brings into creation through the Spirit, who is one with the Father and the Son, by the Spirit's power, lost sinners are rescued and pardoned and liberated and forgiven and now commissioned to go into the world and tell the world what has taken place. The title of my message today is Soul Patrol, the Soul Patrol. They are to go and rescue souls from the wages of sin. Now, they're not just going around evangelizing. They're not just going around telling people about Jesus. They are told in Matthew 28 here specifically to go and make disciples. We're not just telling people about him. We're telling people about him, and we're sitting with them and teaching them. He says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So we're a teaching community. We place value in teaching. We are also, according to the passage, a baptizing community. That's a part of our identity. In fact, over here on the left, uh, you, you might see a, a big old bathtub right here. We're going to be doing a baptism today. And so I figured it is fitting for us to talk about baptism because we are going to do one and to see here in the beginning of this message in Matthew 28 about this soul patrol that Christ has placed us on, which is a mission of going and telling and discipling and baptizing. Now, if you would move from uh, the end of Matthew into the book of Acts. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that means you're going to be moving to the right. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then we have the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have the, the overlap with the ending of Matthew. You have the overlap with the four gospel accounts. It's a seamless overlap with the gospel of Luke because the book of Acts is written by Luke. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke as kind of volume one. And he wrote uh, the book of Acts as volume two. We, we all, you know, you like watching a series, perhaps over COVID, you have, uh, you, you've burned through some series on Netflix or whatever. So this is part one, this is part two, the book of Acts, it overlaps. So as you see at the beginning of the book of Acts, you, you'll, you'll see there Jesus, verse four, gathering them together. That's just what we read in the ending of Matthew. He was gathering them together. And he commanded them, verse 4, not to leave for Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they, they had come together, verse 6 of Acts 1, they were asking him and saying, Lord, is it, is it at this time that you're going to be restoring the kingdom to Israel? Going back to what I said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew there, where they're kind of worried or doubtful, like, hey, what's going on? Is the kingdom going to be popping? All those prophecies about the kingdom, is that going to happen now? And he says to them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. The kingdom's fixed. It's going to happen. It will take place, but it ain't happening right now. But, verse 8, let me tell you what is happening. Power from the Holy Spirit, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. So he's sending them. He's sending them. He's sending them with the power of the Spirit to go into that ancient and dark world to proclaim the good news that has come, to be his soul patrol while the world waits for his return. In Acts chapter 2, if you turn to the second chapter there, in the very beginning, you'll see that the Spirit comes and the church is born. The Spirit carries the church into the world. The Spirit convicts the world of their sin and draws the world to church, bringing, bringing the elect to salvation in Christ by the grace of God. So immediately the church is born. And immediately as the church is born, we see opposition comes. And, and the opposition hasn't stopped ever since. 
Uh, we see in the book of Acts that the church has opposition outside, exterior opposition, and also tension inside. So there's interior and exterior conflict from the very beginning that has come to the church. A lot of the, that conflict that we read about inside of the New Testament revolves around certain cultural and political and social baggage that people bring into the church when they come to Christ. Aren't we glad that those times are gone? No, they still continue. We're reminded of that in recent years. We have our, our baggage that comes as a result of being discipled by the world, and that needs to be undiscipled in discipleship and, and kind of raveled out and teased out those presuppositions, those ideas, those behaviors, those attitudes, those propositions that we once believed. And so in the early church, some of that tension between those ethnic communities, Jews and Gentiles, very broadly speaking, starts becoming an issue. And, and so they're having all these internal issues around that. And the letters of the New Testament are really unpacking God's heart for the people to, to deal with those internal issues. So you have the book of Acts in front of you. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time in Acts chapter 8, so all of this is just to give us context. If you turn to Acts chapter 6, you see in Acts chapter 6 that internal tension. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. See the tension that's going on there between the Hellenized Jewish folks and the non-Hellenized? So that's an ethnocultural kind of dimension there that has brought itself into the church and it's raising some conflict. So verse 2 of Acts chapter 6, look at the text. It says, When the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. While making sure that the internal conflict with the Hellenized and non-Hellenized uh, Jewish community was taking place, while making sure that that conflict that's taking place is, is getting handled, in particular for widows. So that brings in class and poverty and sorts of things. Real needs. These are real needs. These aren't felt needs. These aren't, you know, I feel, no, these are like real people have, not getting access to food and sorts of things. These are real needs, real life stuff. While making sure that this is handled, they, the, 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 the leaders of the church want to make sure that, okay, we got to make sure we deal with this internal tension, but we still have an external mission. We're the soul patrol. We're supposed to go to the ends of the earth, and we've got this divine commission from Jesus, and we're supposed to go and make disciples, and we do that by prayer and ministry of the word. So verse 4, we've got to stay devoted and focused on the word. God has given the church for care. The ministers of the word cannot be everywhere. It is a reality of ministry uh, from the ancient world all the way today. We read in the book of Ephesians in the fourth chapter that it is the work of pastors in the congregation to equip the saints for the work of the harvest, to preach the word and equip the saints. You know, after a, a year like we have had, I'm so thankful for this, seeing the way that the, the body reaches out uh, pastors in this church can't, can't be everywhere at once. We can't call everybody. We can't check in on everybody. We're, we're limited. We are, Jesus himself had 12 disciples. We're limited, but we're actually unlimited in the reach of the body. I had two pastors' conferences this week, and uh, pastors, it's important for them to get together from other churches as well and kind of compare and co contrast notes and hold one another accountable and encourage one another. And pastors are just looking back on the year and just discouraged uh, by, by, by the tensions that have come uh, in, in, in congregations, discouraged uh, for ways that they've been attacked for various things, and, and, and just the challenge that we see here in Acts 6 of staying focused on the Word and not letting those tensions pull us away from that. Other pastors sharing discouragement, other pastors sharing in encouragement, a few in particular sharing stories just about how the body was reaching out. And, and, and one in particular was sharing a story about uh, someone who had, had left his congregation and was mad that he hadn't done this or that or whatever, and they were able to get together and kind of talk about this. And, and he reminded them that, look, I'm just one guy, but the body is reaching out. Like the body knew what was going on, and people were calling you, and people were reaching out to you, and people were ministering to you, and that's what the body does. Acts chapter 6, they said, look, we can't be everywhere. We can't do everything. We have to stay focused on the word, but we're going to make sure as a body 
that the church is reaching out and caring for one another. In verse 5, we see the Spirit is raising up people in the body for that ministry. And then we read in verse 7, the word of God, look at the text, Acts 6, 7, the word of God kept spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase. The chapter then moves from internal uh, uh, attentions that the spirit is raising up the body to care for to external threats. The church has always had, as I said, internal and external issues that come up against it. The chapter ends with an external threat. There are these governmental city officials that come against the ministry of Christ church, specifically in the preaching of the historic figure, Stephen. They literally try to mask him, not a COVID mask, an iron mask of death. In chapter seven, there is a really long sermon from Stephen. It is a masterful, powerful sermon. I do encourage you to take the time to read it this week while this study is fresh on your mind. And the chapter ends... Acts chapter 7, it ends with them killing him. Chapter 8 opens with forces of darkness that come against the church. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 3. We read about Saul, who began ravaging the church, entering house to house and dragging off men and women. He put them into prison, the text says in Acts chapter 8. So there you see these external forces that are coming up against the church, the internal tensions that come up inevitably as the church is on mission. These are realities that we still have going on, dynamics we still have going on today, and reminders that the Spirit of God will use the body of Christ to this end. So if you, if you feel yourself in, in some sort of uh, despair or going through something, reach out to your brothers and sisters at church. Say, I need help, I, I'm feeling this, or this is what's going on, and, and, and reach out and minister to one another. And reach out and pray that we stay focused in times where there are so many distractions. In the last year, I've seen so many churches get so political in their pulpits, or so distracted by this or that, and, and you listen to the preaching, and you go, I don't hear Jesus. I don't hear about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I don't hear about the bloody cross. I don't hear about the love of God overflowing to those who are in need. I don't hear about souls that are doomed for hell being rescued and given the hope of heaven. I don't see the soul patrol going. Acts chapter 8, draw your eyes at the text. We see the ministry of the soul patrol going on, the ministry of Philip. Philip's name is mentioned in Acts 6. We went past it, but in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we read a reference to Philip there. And here in Acts chapter 8, we see the Lord moving Philip from caring for those internal tensions into being an external mouse, mouthpiece in the crazy and wild world of Rome in the first century. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, and they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, Samaritans are quite significant ethno-cultural dimensions. Uh, they, they didn't get along with the Jewish people. They were viewed kind of as like half-Jewish people. Uh, they, were, they were viewed with disdain because they didn't believe all of the things that the Jewish community believed in terms of, of politics and religion. In particular, they had an ongoing debate about where the temple was supposed to be. Among other things, they had uh, you know, differences over sections of the Hebrew Bible. So there, there's that kind of religious and kind of ethnic tension that takes place there. There is a geographic significance to this. Recall that we saw in Acts chapter 1 when we read past that Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you are to go from Judea, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts starts following this geographic pattern. You can't stop the shining. It keeps going on. We are moving now from, from Acts, just surveying so that you have context as we're in the eighth chapter here. The gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Judea, and now it's in Samaria. The gospel is crossing cultural barriers. The gospel is crossing language barriers. The gospel is now coming to the Samaritans here in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 10, it'll go to the Gentiles. It's, it's going to fade, in fact, you'll see, and I'll try to highlight that. Now, verse 26, back at the text, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Here we are confronted with the appearance of a heavenly being, an angel, a messenger from God, who relays a, a, a command from Philip to go to Gaza. 
In the book of Acts, we see the activity of angels in salvation history. In the gospel accounts, we see the angel of the Lord appearing. In, in the Hebrew Bible, you see the angel of the Lord appearing. You see angels are involved in the ministrations of God, and God uses them at certain unique moments to, to be these ministering spirits that cooperate with the workings of earthly messengers. There were two roads from Jerusalem to Gaza, and the Spirit commands Philip to take the desert road. The desert road is the road that is seldom used. Philip, Philip might have no one to preach to on this little desert road. I, I mean, why do you want me to take the desert road, angel? Maybe you should talk to Yahweh. No one goes on the desert road. It's, it's also possible to translate the Greek phrase here, toward the south at noon, and that rendering would make the divine command even more unusual and perplexing because at noon, the road would be deserted of travelers because of the heat. One of the reasons why for our outdoor service we've been meeting at 9 o'clock is because it starts to get a little warm out here. It starts, you know, it's nice. It's been nice, praise God. I've really enjoyed it. It's been nice seeing the church, being the church, worshiping Christ this year. It's been great, but, you know, it starts to get hot. And I'm bald, and it starts to bake, so i got to wear the cap, and i am probably, uh, you know, got to keep it cool so I don't get skin cancer on the dome. But you don't go on that road at that time. Angel, don't you know this? I know you're a spirit body and all, so we can't put suntan lotion on you. But, hey, why do you want me to go on this hot road that nobody goes on at this time? This would make the command of the Lord all the more confusing but if you have any maturity in Christ, you know often he calls you to do some confusing things. <laughs> Can I get an amen on that one? So he, he responds, and he responds in obedience. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 27. We read that he got up and he went. And he's on the road, verse 27 says, and there's an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who's in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So the road wasn't totally empty. There was someone on it. You see that God makes no mistakes. God does not stutter when he tells you to do something. It's, it's best to do it. It's best, it's best to let the fact of God check your feelings because your feelings will lead you astray. Your opinions will lead you astray. When the Lord speaks, you will never, never be led astray. Now, who is this guy that Philip meets? Who is this Ethiopian eunuch? Now, Ethiopian here... Uh, very likely, doesn't refer to modern-day Ethiopia, but to ancient Nubia. The most commonly mentioned feature of Ethiopians in Jewish and Greco-Roman literature, also noted throughout the Hebrew Bible, here's a quick cross-reference, cross Jeremiah 13, 23, the most noted feature of this people group is their black skin. The Ethiopian eunuch is a black man, as you're visualizing the story. So you have, you have this Jewish man coming to this black man. He is uh, said uh, to, to, to be a eunuch. Now, a eunuch is someone who's been emasculated. There's kids in the house, so we'll just leave it there. And it's not, it's not entirely certain whether or not that is the case with regard to this particular man, because a eunuch doesn't necessarily always mean that you've been emasculated. Sometimes the term is used to just speak of government officials who haven't been emasculated. I think of Potiphar. In Genesis 39, verse 1, in the Greek text, in the Septuagint, it uses that phrase, and we don't have indication that he was emasculated. In fact, he was married. So generally, however, they were emasculated to make sure that when they were working with the king's harem, that they, that they wouldn't mess around, you know? It, that's just kind of a cold, dark world. Can you imagine getting called into the boss's office? He's like, I'd like to give you a raise. I'd like to, I'd like to promote you. All right, boss, what, what, what you got for me? I'm going to have you working in my wife's office. Uh, sounds good to me. Uh, and yeah, well, I'm going to send you over to HR, and uh, you're going to have to go to the doctors, and we're going to have to do some snipping, though, if you want the job. I'm out. I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'll stay where I'm at. I don't want to do that. Well, that's how they did it back in the day. So he could be emasculated, a black man who's emasculated, works for the government. Ethiopia is a very large kingdom located south of Egypt geographically to the Greeks and the Romans. It, it represented kind of the outer limits of the known world. Its kings were believed at the time in, in myth to be incarnations of the sun god, and everyday affairs of the government were to be held beneath them. The real power laid in, in the Ethiopian context with queen mothers who were known to be these dynastic hereditary uh, figures like Candace. Candace 
is not a proper name. That's not her name. It's an official title like Pharaoh or Caesar. Candace is a title, a, t a title of power. Candace is mentioned in Greco-Roman literature. Uh, tradition declares to be the queen mother of, of the land. She seems to have ruled Candace, uh, the black Nubian kingdom south of Egypt that today is partly known as Sudan. The kingdom had trade with Rome, and so there was interactions between uh, the land of Israel and this kingdom. And the eunuch is in charge of her treasure. So he's, he's a diplomat. He's got money in the pockets. He's a minister of finance in modern terms, a, a treasurer of secretary. And so you know he was traveling with a crew. He had an entourage with him. He's an important guy. He, he's, he's in his little chariot, and he's got some black SUVs behind him with some guys with some sunglasses and, and some Glocks, and, you know, they're ready to rock and roll if anything goes down. He's an official person who is in town. Why is he on the road? Well, notice the text says that he had come to Jerusalem. Specifically, what does the text say? To worship. And that's the interesting flow of the book of Acts that we saw at the beginning from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The gospel starts with the Jewish people, Jewish Messiah, Jewish followers. It then goes to the Hellenized Jews. We saw in Acts 6 the Hellenized Jews and some of the tension that that brought. So you go from 100% Jewish to Hellenized Jewish people. And then it goes, we saw, uh, you know, to the Samaritans who are kind of viewed as sort of half, half Jewish people. And, and, and then it's going to go to the Gentiles that aren't Jewish at all. So it goes from really Jewish, kind of Jewish, a little bit Jewish to not Jewish. It's a, it's a definite fade. It's a barber's cut, that, the way that, that Luke is writing this thing. And here inserted in that transition is this Ethiopian. Before the gospel goes to the Gentiles, it goes to what we might say is spiritually kind of a half-Gentile, half-Jew, because the text describes him as a Jewish convert. He's going to Jerusalem to worship. He's a, a proselyte. He's, he's become Jewish in his faith. He's what we refer to as a God-fearer. And he, and he goes to Jerusalem to worship. And we, we read in the text that he leaves empty. You see that? He leaves empty. There's a reason for thinking that if he were a physical eunuch, he would have been denied access to the temple. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 denies, uh, denies those who've been emasculated from entering to, to the temple. And so maybe he comes to the temple and he gets there and, and the priests and the leaders are like, yeah, nah, bro, you, you can't come in here. You're a eunuch. He wouldn't have been allowed, he wouldn't have been allowed in. And so he's going home empty handed and he's wondering about this whole ordeal. He would have been a, a, a limited person. He wouldn't have had access to these things. Another reason for thinking why he was leaving empty was that Luke shows us a man who does not understand some fundamental issues about his faith. He is reading the prophet Isaiah, the text shows us, and he will admit that he does not understand the text of Isaiah, which is a, a basic text in the Jewish tradition that you should understand. So he's empty of knowledge. He doesn't understand what he's reading. He's empty of experience. He wasn't allowed to participate. Verse 28, look at the text, Acts 8, 28. He's returning, sitting in his chariot, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, while returning from his own country, he's sitting in a chariot. Most people, of course, walked in that day, so this tells you what kind of a baller he is. He's got a chariot. He's got a chariot. That's, some, that's baller status. You have a chariot. Are you kidding me? That's like Tesla. I don't know what the coolest car is these days, but that's some fancy stuff right there. And, and, and we see the, the eunuch in reading this, and he wants to understand it. He's reading Isaiah, and he wants to understand it. He has a desire to know God. He, he has a desire to know what the word means. I want to know what the word means. Can you explain this to me? What, like, what does this mean? He had no doubt paid a great price in Jerusalem for that scroll. You know, people didn't have Bible apps. People didn't have their own copies of the Bible. This is way before the Gutenberg Press. To get a copy of that scroll alone meant that he was a man of money. That, I mean, it, it takes people years of their lives to make copies of the Bible, sitting there meticulously, writing it out. So he has a copy of Isaiah. That lets you know what kind of a, a, a man he was. And I wonder about this section. We read this section that he's reading from Isaiah 53 at the beginning of our worship service today. And that's why we read it. So it'd be fresh in our minds as we're talking about it here. He's reading Isaiah 53 and you can't help but to see, oh, Jesus does all of those things. That's amazing. And he's reading it and goes, I don't, you know, I don't know what this means. 
And, and in, in fact, in this section, the other section that we read at the beginning of service, we went from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56, you might recall, verses 3, 4, and 5, there is a prediction of a blessing for eunuchs in the millennial age of the Messiah. So he, he might be, you know, hey, I see my place. I got, this, I got Isaiah scroll. I see it's talking about me in Isaiah 56. But what's going on in Isaiah 53? Here we See, next in the text, if you draw your eyes at verse 30, Philip comes up. Philip rolls up. And, the, and, the, and, and he, he's going to get in in verse 30, and Philip's going to start explaining things. But look first at verse 29 before verse 30. The Spirit says to Philip, you get up there and you join that chariot. So here we, we see the divine commission. We see the driving chariot. Here we see the divine command. You get up there to that driving chariot and you bring that divine commission that has been given. Soul patrol time. Understand that's an intimidating thing. Right? I, I, I said, you know, it's the entourage. You got, you know, guys with sunglasses and Glock 9s and they're rolling, you know, maybe a helicopter over the top or whatever, just in terms of modern terms. Can you imagine the Lord saying, I want you to go over there and talk to those guys. I'm just a nobad, nomadic nobody, Philip might think. Go up to that chariot. You're going to get me killed. You're going to get me killed today, Lord. Why, why go up to that chariot? Can't I just go up to someone without a chariot who's my equivalent in life? There's a couple other people maybe on that dusty road he could go talk to. Philip does not know that this guy just came back from Jerusalem. He doesn't have the background that we have, right? We, I've been teaching you all this background. He's coming back. He's bought a scroll. He's reading it, Isaiah 53. Philip doesn't know that any of that is going on. He has no idea. God just says, hey, you go up to that entourage and you, you, you bring it. Let this be a reminder to us that you never know what God is doing in the life of people around you. Total strangers. You know, we might think like, oh, I can't talk to them about Jesus. You know, I don't know who they are. They're bigger than me or they won't listen to me or whatever. We might think that we have to build a relationship first. You know, I got to build, a re I got to be, you know, whatever. I got to, you know, and then, and then I'll bring up Jesus later, you know. No, no, no. You don't know what God is doing. You, you don't know what God is up to. Philip didn't have time for all that. He's got to be on the Lord's business uh, uh, to this driving chariot. He's got a divine command. There, there is this, this commission that's been given. you you got to get on it. God is on the work. God is on the move. God is doing stuff. When he calls us to people, he, he's already been preparing. He's already been doing things. That's true in terms of bringing the message of the gospel. That's true in our Christian lives and sanctification. You, someone might post something or say something or do something or whatever. And if you're not walking with the Lord in step with the Spirit, you might think that you know what's going on and you don't. You have no idea. And you might presume a motive or you might presume that this person has this going on. And you have no idea what is going on. You got to get in there and you got to pray and you got you to talk and you can't presume. And, and you get in there and Philip gets in there. And boy, he sees the Lord has really teed this thing up. The Lord has really teed this thing up. He's, he's reading the Bible already. It's just all teed up. And, and let me remind you that that is our power. The power that we have is in the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17 says. This is a reminder to us how the lost come. They come by the word. In, in, in 20 plus years of pastoring, you know, I, inevitably I'll hear people, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, hey, maybe if we like soup our website up, you know, people will come. Maybe, maybe if we spruce up the social media, you know, tone it down a little, or tone it up a little or do this or do that, then maybe they'll come. You know, the building over there is kind of ugly. Maybe, maybe if we put a strobe light on it, or we get a light show, or we paint it, or we do that, you know, then, then maybe people will come. No, people come as the Spirit draws the lost to himself, and people come ultimately by the power of the Word of God. I have been around the world, and I have seen churches thriving in the ugliest of buildings, I have seen churches thriving with the wackest of websites. I have seen churches thriving with the worst, with the worst preachers in them. You go, why would anyone want to listen to that? There's nothing enter entertaining or captivating by that. And now all these people are coming because the power isn't in the preacher, in the building, in the programs or any of that. Brothers and sisters, the power is in the word. 
That's what we stand on. That's what we proclaim. That, that's everything to us. And so the word is the power. The spirit is the power. And the spirit works with the word together. And so the spirit carries Philip and uses the word of God to grow Christ's church, to bring the soul patrol to this wonderful black man that has questions about the God of Israel. Philip ran up, verse 30, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip says, do you, do you understand what you are reading? Apparently, without the benefit of a formal introduction, normally required for an audience with such an exalted leader like the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip just rolls up on him. He hears him reading, and he says, hey, bro, do you know what you are reading? Do you understand that? And what will he reply? Well, of course I do. I'm an important official. Back off. You know, guys, deal with this ragged, you know, guy or whatever. No, no, no. What we see is we see this openness because God was preparing his heart for this. And we see this readiness in Philip because he's been discipled. He knows how to document Christ to him. If you're following on the outline, we move from the driving chariot to the divine command to now documenting Christ, verse 31 in the text. He said to him, how, how, will, how could I, the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and to sit with him. Now, traveling is really dirty business, and Philip was not the social equal of such a man. Uh, to, to come and sit up with him, that, that would have been a bit of a you know, the, a kind of a, a, div, a difficult situation. Imagine yourself walking on a dirty road. Someone rolls up in a nice, clean car and is like, hey, man, get in. You, you, you might feel like, hey, you know, I'm going to dirty your car or whatever. He, he jumps up in there and he starts documenting Christ. Look at verse 32 in the passage. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. This is Isaiah 53. And lamb before his sure is silent, so he does not open his mouth. And in humiliation and judgment, he was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life was removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please let me know of whom does the prophet speak, of himself or of someone else. Now this tells you that Philip was disciple because one, he knew what he was reading from. He just heard him and goes, Oh, I know that section. That's Isaiah. Let, let's talk about it. Okay, here's the section in Isaiah uh, yeah, there's this one who suffers in the place of the people. Yeah, let's talk about this section right here. And then, and then the eunuch is like, yeah, I wanna, I, who's, who's the he here in the passage? Now, interpretation-wise, in the ancient world, there were three popular options in terms of the question, who's the he? Some held that the he is a representation of the nation of Israel. Second, others held that Isaiah was talking about himself. He was the he in the passage. Third, others said the he was in reference to a, a Messiah figure. Okay, those are the three popular positions in the ancient world at Philip's day. And guess what? Those are still the popular positions in our day, depending on your presuppositions. And so, so Philip gets there, and Philip is aware. He's been intellectually trained. He's aware of the positions, and he's aware how to argue and to document Christ and to show, look, this, this passage is not only about the Messiah, but have you heard the Messiah has come? The Messiah came to town. And he's, he's ready to engage that. He's equipped to do that. He's, he's equipped to answer the questions that are going on at the time of his day, which is why we teach the way that we teach at Delray Church, because what we want of our people is that you'd be equipped to engage people in dialogue to talk about Jesus. I love getting emails from people in this church saying, I'm talking to my friend about this, and here's what my friend's dealing with. You know, what sections of the Bible, what, what, what can I use? He asked this question about the Bible. You know, how do I respond to that? Man, that is discipleship. That's, that, that's what this is all about. That is the ministry of the word. That is what we need our pastors to be focused on. And Philip was devoted to that task. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he preached Jesus to him. I love that line. He preached Jesus to him. From the very beginning of Scripture, the eunuch had been reading in Isaiah, and Isaiah is preaching Jesus to him, and he hadn't seen it, and the Spirit will open his eyes, and Philip will bring the word, and regeneration will come. Earlier passages of the servant figure in Isaiah, they, there are some passages where the servant figure in Isaiah refers to Israel. But chapter 49, verse 5, distinguishes the servant from the rest of Israel. And in chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, he is rejected by Israel, so that he in the passage can't be Israel. 
In chapter 53, verses 4 through 12, that he bears the sins of Israel, although he himself, 53.9, is not guilty, and 53.12 suffers voluntarily. This is not Isaiah. This is the Messiah. The, the official's confusion would be understandable, but Philip's exposition is correct. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Philip breaks it down for him. He breaks down the gospel for him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. He brings the word and he tells him about Jesus. He doesn't just answer the question of who's the he. I'll tell you who the he is. But he tells him who Jesus is and he invites Jesus to come. I've been talking today about the God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. I've been talking today about how the Son became a man and died for us. It would be a negligence on my part, a dereliction of my duty, if I didn't invite you to say, come to him. Come to him now. Cry out to him now. What are you waiting for? He's, he's here now. You can ask his forgiveness. He'll forgive you. He'll pardon you. He'll give you life. You see, you see, Philip wasn't there just to do a Bible study. He's there to call him to salvation. Verse 36, as they went along the road, they, they came upon some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? So he explains to him the gospel, that great commission. Go, make disciples, teaching, all that I've commanded you, baptizing. He's done that, and now he wants to know, hey, can I get baptized? I would like to get baptized. There's a Nacho Libre joke in there. But I would like to get baptized. You know, what, what, is, what prevents me? Why, why, why can't I? Now, now again, again, recall what I said. Eunuchs weren't allowed in the temple. He's coming home a little empty-handed. No one explained to him in the holy city of all places what this passage meant. And he likely wasn't allowed into the temple. And he's going home empty-handed. And here his eyes are opened by the regenerating power of the Spirit. And here it's explained to him the message of the gospel that is available to all people. And here he's believing in his heart. And he goes, well, then what prevents me? And maybe he's assuming because... Because, because uh, you know, he, he, Philip's Jewish and maybe he's assuming, like, maybe Philip won't let me. Maybe I'll be viewed as an outsider again or whatever. You know, what, 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 what's preventing me from this? He goes, no, nothing is preventing you from this. Verse 37, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he, verse 38, ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Nothing is preventing you from coming to the waters if you believe. The waters of baptism are, are just a picture of, of something that has taken place in your heart. The waters of baptism are an external sign of an inward reality. My wedding ring is an external sign of something that took place almost 20 years ago when my wife and I were united as one. This ring is just a picture of it. I can't take my ring off and I got some COVID weight, so I can't, but <laughs> I can't take my ring off and go out and cheat on my wife and then say, well, I didn't have my ring on, so it doesn't count. No, no, no. This isn't what makes you married. This is a sign that you are married, right? So, so when we say our vows and when, you know, you say, well, what prevents me from having a ring? Nothing. You've said your vows. You've been united in Christ. Nothing. Wear your ring. That's a picture of what has taken place. If you, if you believed in him and you said, forgive me, you know what he's done? He's washed you of your sin. He's washed it inside of you, washed it. And so it's appropriate on the outside that we have this ritual of water, a ritual that goes back 2,000 years for us as Christians and goes back even more in the Jewish context from which the practice of baptism comes. There's dry creek beds. We know archaeologically on those roads, those creek beds can fill up with water. They stumble upon a humble, dirty creek bed and the noble, mighty secretary of the treasury of the great Nubian kingdom says, why can't I get down into those waters? He says, nothing, nothing. You believe Jesus, you come. And when they came out of the water, verse 39, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch saw him no longer and they went away rejoicing. I love this verse. When the work was done, God took Philip out of there because the soul patrol still had work to do. We still got work to do. Stay focused on the word. Stay focused on worship in the Lord. God's people have been saved to be a worshiping community. The world is filled with distractions. 
The world is filled with noise. The world is filled with things to divide you, discourage you, eat away at your heart, and get you off mission. And yet, and yet we see in the text of the passage, the final point that you have on your outline, duty calls. We've seen, we've seen the commission, the chariot, the command, Christ, conversion being displayed in baptism. And lastly, the call, the duty that we have been given. We've been called to go, church. The great theologian Carl Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. We have work to do. We have people who are dying and don't know the Lord. People who need to hear about him. Can, can you imagine if there was a firefighter who got a 911 call of a house that was burning down with a family in it? And the firefighter pulled up at that house and sat in his car and played with an app on his phone while the house burned down in flames? What would that firefighter deserve in a court of law? Two years in prison? 20 years in prison? You be the judge. You, you, have all, you have everything on that firefighter truck to put out that fire, and you sat in your car fiddling with an app on your phone. But the firefighter said, well, but I was, I was playing with my Bible app. I was reading the Word of God. You know, I was, I was uh, studying the Word or whatever. <laughs> no, that's not an excuse. Yeah, we study the Word, but we, we got to go and rescue people who are, who are dying. That commission was given to the church. The commission, we have to go. Uh, noted uh, Christian author Bill Bright, he had a book, The Coming Revival, and in it he documented that only 2% of Christians in America regularly share their faith with others. Only 2%. It seems that the majority of the church ha is fiddling with their phones. And we've gotten off course. And like the firefighter who, who's just playing with his phone and, while a house and a family you know, you know, burns down, we have to be reminded, look, there, there's people who are, are perishing. The, the, the Ethiopian eunuch would have went home and died and, and, and faced the judgment of God if Philip didn't go and bring the word to him. And, and, and you know, historically, I mean, actually today in contemporary settings, there are 36 million Christians in Ethiopia today. 36 million Christians who trace their roots back to this man in the book of Acts that we are reading, historically among a few other disciples of Jesus who also brought the gospel to that geographic area. Do you know that Christianity was so popular in that area that it was declared the state religion of the land in 330 AD? Look it up. The kingdom of Ascom, which is present-day Ethiopia, and Eritrea was one of the first Christian countries in the planet. On, a, on an apologetic note, this really deals a death blow to the whole idea that Christianity is the white man's religion. Christianity came from Europe, you know, white Jesus and all this stuff. Christianity is the white man's religion. No, no, no. In Africa... It was in Africa. It was the religion of the land of Africa before it would be the religion of the land in Europe. When, when Constantine is issuing the Edict of Milan saying, we need to tolerate Christians in Europe, they, they already were state religions in Africa, in Asia. The gospel is a, has went all around the world. The faith of Christ is a, is a faith of all peoples. This is just nonsense that people today will attack the faith in that way, and it's easily exposed. Philip, verse 40, goes on to Asidus. Again, the gospel just keeps going to all people. And he passed, and he's preaching the gospel to all the cities, verse 40 says. The application for us is simple, brothers and sisters. If you're not sharing your faith, you need to do it. If you're not sharing your faith, you are like the firefighter in my illustration, fiddling around with other things while people are dying. Now, in saying that, I don't say that. Uh, for purposes of creating some sort of uh, guilt trip and giving you an evangelism quota. I, I, I say that so that we have the reminder, look, there are people who are dying. And in my illustration, I asked what would be the appropriate response to that firefighter in his dereliction of duty, right? He should lose his job. He should go to jail, really, for that. And so, so, so with that neglect and with that reality, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, we don't share the faith as much as we should and we get distracted, let me preach to you the one who is never distracted, the one who's never fiddling with his phone, the one who never fails to evangelize. His name is Jesus. And he forgives us for the way that we've been fiddling with our phones. He forgives us for the way that we get distracted. 
He forgives us for the way that we have sat on the world's greatest treasure. He forgives us. Come to him. Come to him. Oh, church, if if you've sat silent in your evangelism and your witness, come to him and be pardoned, be set free. When we talk about forgiveness and repentance and faith, I'm not just talking to people who don't know him. I'm talking to the church, too. We need this forgiveness. We need this repentance. We need the one who has come for us. And this is why every Sunday when we gather, we we take communion together and we remember the one who has come for us. If you would, get your communion cups. And let's remember the one who was given for us. I've got to grab mine. It's sitting in my chair. I've got a couple back there, son. Here we picture the world's greatest evangelist who is none other than the immortal, immaterial, invisible God who takes on material flesh, becomes visible, and dies at the hands of flesh in order to give us pardon. Let's, let's eat and in so doing, think of him and celebrate him for what he has done. His evangelism cost him his life. When I, when I share the, the faith with my friends who are lost and whatever, you know, it's not, ain't nobody killing me over it. They just make fun of me on Facebook or whatever, you know, or they stop kicking it with me. He, di- he died. He was on the cross dying, still preaching the gospel. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, you know, preaching to the guy next to him. Hey, hey, you know, the other guy's making fun of him. He's preaching the gospel while he's dying on the cross. Our Savior is an evangelist. And he forgives us for our ineptness in evangelism. And we can come to him and confess, Lord, we, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't. And be set free and be given power by the Spirit to go and proclaim him. Drink the cup, celebrate him, brothers and sisters. Communion isn't the only thing we get to see today to picture our Lord and reflect on the soul patrol that has been given to us. We get to, to witness a baptism today. So what we're going to do, we're going to sing a song, and we are going to watch uh, one of our brothers in Christ be baptized, and then we're going to sing a song. So we have two songs of praise left, and we're going to witness a baptism. And I pray that as we're singing... It's not just a time of song, but it's a time to do business with God. And as you're singing, you know, in your heartbeat, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, change me. Lord, transform me. If you don't know God, you know, Lord, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, have your way with me. You've come, you've come today not just to hear someone talking about Jesus for an hour. You've come to meet Jesus and to know him and be known by him. So let me pray, let's sing, let's watch a baptism, let's celebrate. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of the book of Acts. We thank you for the joy that the text describes in the Ethiopian eunuch. His life was changed. He was on a dirty, dusty road, discouraged and confused, coming home empty-handed. And he went home filled with the Spirit and filled with joy all wet too. Lord, we come today and we get to watch a brother be baptized. We're reminded of your washing work. We're reminded of your mighty power. And Lord, as we sing, I I pray that you would be doing a work in our hearts, encouraging us, forgiving us, cleansing us, empowering us. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen.